Face will start to um, <laughs> Now, in partnership with the Westport Library and Quick Center for the Arts and uh, Apple Tunes and all the places that everyone listens to their podcasts, it's Oh Brother, Not Another Podcast with me, Trace Burroughs. Uh, and me, Migs Burroughs, and our guest today um, is Bob Ellis. And if that's not a household name, but it sounds familiar, think of Tracy Ellis Ross. Um, and and we're we're really talking to Bob today because he was he managed Meatloaf, who passed away recently. And we wanted to uh, kind of get insight into that, and then sort of go backwards into Bob's incredible career. Uh, in music and and Hollywood, and uh, good morning, Bob. It's a Sunday morning. How are you? Hi, <laughs> guys. How are you? Um, it's a snowy Sunday morning, the day before um, Valentine's Day. Yeah. So who's? Yeah, well, that, okay. That's a good point. Who's your Valentine's? Do you have a Do you have a Valentine's? It better, be, better be my wife and my children. <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> you, you know, I mean, in my mom. I could probably come up with a lot of other ones, but I'm, I'm you know, I'm, I'm a little bit older now. Yeah. Well, that's, um, so, so, you know, I still have a, I mean, I have a TikTok account and um, a marketing company that uh, that's a lot of fun, you know, to deal with Instagram. And, um, and that's why I have TikTok. As a matter of fact, uh, <laughs> Somebody hacked my TikTok account. Oh, yeah. Well, I guess that's one of the, let's say, downsides of celebrity. Uh, you know, you become a target, right? I've, I've become a, a somewhat of a target, you know, in lawsuits. Um, um, but this is the first time uh, even Tracy uh, had ever heard of uh, someone holding their Instagram account for ransom. I mean, it's almost comical, okay? Mm. And it's how why would they pick him, of all people? I don't have 100 million followers. You know, I mean, as a, as a local guy, I mean, I have a substantial amount of followers, I guess. I don't know. Um, uh, but really bizarre. Anyway, let's move on. <laughs> okay. Yeah, okay. I'm curious, do you, uh, you're a manager, and well, let's... And we should talk about meatloaf first, right? Trace, do you have a meatloaf question? I was going to say that you, you've met, for people who don't know, you've managed a lot of uh, famous musicians, uh, including Diana Ross, the Rolling Stones, Ronnie Wood, Meatloaf, Billy Preston, and several others. And Loaf just recently passed away, and I'm curious how you um, became Meatloaf's manager and what happened after that. Um, I had a successful uh, management company. Um, I was a nice guy uh, in the business. Nobody had anything bad to say about me. And then uh, Meatloaf invited me up to his Stanford house. Um, and I had had the house in Weston. And on several, several interviews, <laughs> um, and I think, I think not that I was, knew what I was doing, um, but the fact that I only lived 20 minutes away <laughs> really solidified <laughs> you know, my management deal with Meatloaf. Um, 
Um, so you were I, like, I wasn't, uh, he lived in Stanford. Um, and uh, uh, when I got meatloaf, he was in a lot of trouble, meaning not trouble with uh, the police, mm. but finally, mm. that record, Bad Out of Hell, uh, cost him, you know, back then, and I'm, I know I'm jumping around, that album cost a bloody fortune, you know, to make. And uh, Jim Steinman, who wrote the songs, um, you know, only worked, you know, from dark, you know, to sunrise, and then, then he would go to sleep. His world was upside down, and uh, he was some character. I mean, you know, um, it looked like he was out of the Munsons. You know, <laughs> long gray hair, long fingernails, black, you know, goth, really before goth. I don't know. You know, do you want to explain it? Yeah, no, know. but I'm just curious. I mean, Bad Out of Hell, I think, sold 40 million albums. So how does anybody lose money? I, I, you know. 50 million. 50, okay. So 50 million albums. I mean, even if he got 10 cents an hour, I mean, how do you not be okay after that? Oh, <laughs> recruitment. And this was a strange album. And he was signed to Cleveland and International that signed him to Epic Records. So you got all of these people taking commission, uh, a record um, that can't get off the ground, but they know they have something. And so the more they invest, the more they can recoup. Mm. And then if you do a video, you know, you want it to be over the top. Everything is recoupable, you know. And yeah. so that, that's why we had to do, that's when he called me in. Um, I don't, I, I don't, we didn't, he, ne he never toured. I was the first touring manager. Hmm. And so the record really didn't take off into America until it went to number one in England and then stayed on the charts, you know, for two years in the top 10. And then, then was he recognized in America. So during that period, you know, he was number one in England, but still slow in America. You know, you acquire more debt. And the one thing why you don't need a record company today is, first of all, there's no albums. You know, uh, we saw that Adele was able to just recently, you know, the only way Spotify or some of the streaming services could play Adele is that they had to play the whole album at once. Um, uh, you couldn't pick a song, um, you know, and so she had the clout, um, uh, especially with that television show, that spe spectacular show she did. So, um, you know, at that particular time, um, it didn't make sense to go on. Um, so you go to the best, you know, music attorney who was Alan Grubman at the time. And he said, um, he did it with one other account. And you gotta remember he had 200, you know, from Springsteen to Billy Joel to Tommy Mottola. So he knew the ins and outs better than I did. And I had a friend that was in that firm, Arthur Andersky. Um, and he said, if you go bankrupt, they can't come after you for all the recoupable 
that everybody wants from you, <clears throat> meaning no more that you make. And yeah. he was deeply in debt. So he lived in Stanford, Connecticut, had uh, an apartment in New York that was the office. Um, and then we slow it. Bankruptcy court takes a tremendous amount of time before they released him from his contract. And then we were set up to make a new record deal as soon as it, as soon as the bankruptcy court, um, you know, declared bankruptcy. And so they've become lifelong friends of mine. Arista Records in England picked him up. Um, and during my years with uh, Billy Preston and Shaka, did I even meet these guys? Uh, uh, David Simone was the um, president, or they have another name in England, and another guy who I'm still friendly with is Art Yeager, who was CFO. Uh, that name is the same in uh, both England and here. And uh, so when the bankruptcy took place, I was able to sign the next day, and then all of that debt. And obviously this time we were, at least I thought in the beginning that we were aware of what we were spending, you know, um, um, but the, he lost the royalty and didn't have the publishing. So his, his, he was only the singer, you know. Mm. So when you see that uh, Stin sold his publishing this past week okay. for $250 million. Um, um, these catalogs, and, and when you don't own them, and back then, you know, you never, I think the only one that I knew was uh, Billy Joel um, uh, that owned 100% of his publishing. We all remember when the Beatles got, their publishing company got bought by Michael Jackson, and then how could that happen? Why wouldn't the Beatles be able to do it? You know, and it's happening again where now the artist has, you know, some worth in his publishing company. Some of these, uh, you couldn't sign with a record label unless you gave, unless you're a good songwriter, unless you gave up 50% of your publishing to the, you know, to the uh, record label. Mm. At least my experience. Um, and that's just the way it was. Um, I'm curious, more of the insider view of management. Now, you were married to Diana Ross, and you were also her manager. Were you her manager at the same time? No, no, that was the height of, um, in fact, it's uh, 55 years ago. So, no, 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 she was still Diana, she was still the Supreme when, when we met, and, and I think we were still married and she was a Supreme before she became Diana Ross and the Supremes. I don't know if, you know, there's only people our age remember. Yeah, the right. Or, you know, Smokey Robinson and the Miracles or, you know, um, you really didn't know the, you knew the names of some of the groups, but I was not her active manager. Motown had a, oh. a machine behind her. Did I help her with some of the tours? Yes. Yeah, and how and your daughter has you know become so famous and been in Blackish and many other things and commercials and what do you, do you you're not her official manager but do you, you can't help I'm sure give her advice or does she ask for advice ever or she must she could 
year, years ago. Now she gives me advice. <laughs> <laughs> like what? What does she say? She's the first person I went to last night. <clears throat> it's oh. the Instagram ransom, which she was, you know, she got so involved in it, you mm. know, like a detective. Um, the world has changed, you know. She's got an agent for speaking, an agent for movies, an agent for TV, um, you, you know, the PR. I mean, everything is, the, the world, believe it or not, has completely changed from when I started, you know, and I got out. I'll, I'll tell you, oh, I hate to keep on going back and forth, the only thing that we were able to do because of this guy, uh, Alan Rubman, is um, Meatloaf's album was only a cassette. There was no, it wasn't, there wasn't a CD yet. So when we made the deal with Arista, were we able to pick up the new sales off of the, the CD? So nobody was making a CD deal. They never even heard of it. Hmm. You know, I mean, in our lifetime, we remember 8-track, and then we remember a cassette, and the Walkman was a cassette with eight batteries, you know, <laughs> right. that you could listen to um, before they came out with, uh, you know, Sony came out with um, the Walkman. You eventually parted ways with Meatloaf. Why did that happen? Yeah. When you're number one, there's only one place to go, you know, and it's not zero. It's you go down. You know, when you're number one, you're, you know, merchandise, you're touring, you know, everything is, you know, a perfect world. Um, but my experience in, uh, the music business is uh, after you're number one, you know, and you can't get back there. And that's a, you have to be lucky and be at the right place at the right time, you know, and kind of be in a trend. And that only happens for a few people once in a lifetime. And then they're one hit wonders. And so, you you know, there's so much uh, that goes into the into the luck side of it. I mean, I've had records go out when we had 45s and everybody, you know, mixed and tweaked um, the A side, you know, and what we would do to get that 50% of the publishing is to, um, you know, a B side record rather than cover somebody else's song so we could pick up the publishing on both sides, which made up the 50%. Uh, but what happened is when it went to the, they sent the 45s to the DJ, uh, the DJs thought or decided. And then when you had New York the set up, when you had program directors in Miami, New York, Chicago, LA, Detroit, you know, Philly Sound. Um, so that one instance was the, what we thought was the hit song got flipped and the B-side became the number one song. So, you know, who, who, who knows? You don't really know, um, you know, and it's, there's a lot of timing involved, um, you know. And, but who, who made, uh, where was the decision? Was it a, was it, was it, 
are you upset by these things or just just professional it's just another professional experience when billy i mean i'm sorry when uh meatloaf and you part ways is that was that a, was that an emotional parting or is it just business uh, it it could have been like a marriage breaking up um for 30 years you know we did a lot of things together and Every tour, you know, he wanted me on the tour. We'd bring an accountant to do the uh, the receipts, the tour receipts, because we didn't have the records. The records that were selling, you know, Epic owns. So you were um, with him for 30 years, huh? I think about that long. I don't know. I talked to Pearl, one of his daughters. I wasn't involved, but Lou Adler came up with this Rocky Horror Picture Show. Mm. He was a standout star. Um, you know, with a small part. And so then everybody recognized him because he was bigger than life at the time. Um, and um, um, did, he, did he, I'm curious, did he have, you know, it's, some of the celebrities are, are famous for their contract writers. You know, I have to have in my dressing room, I have to have a bowl of hard boiled eggs, you know, dipped in <laughs> chocolate. You know, did Meatloaf any any weird writers like that? Well, he, he you know, I, I've seen it all, you know. <laughs> yeah. We eat the chocolate M&Ms, so somebody had to pick out the colors. <laughs> yeah. Or you could only have no roses, just rose petals. You know? <laughs> or... What's you the know. worst writer you've ever heard in all your yeah. performances you've worked with? What is the worst writer that you've ever heard of in any of the that they put out there? The craziest writer? Yeah. Um, I would have to say the Bangladesh tour with Ravi Shankar, Billy Preston starred on. Yeah. I, um, I was at that concert. I, I was at the Bangladesh concert. You were? Uh, yeah. Madison Square Garden? Madison Square Garden. I was there on the second night. Yep. Fantastic. And so that was um, an ashram, you know, and uh, <laughs> because, you know, the Beatles then took off and, and George was on his own. Um, uh, they had complete, you know, Indian, I mean, complete Indian kitchens every night that traveled with the band. Oh, really? all, you know, they, I mean, had authentic, yeah. you know, Indian ovens and all of this. I mean, it was just more equipment for the kitchen than, <laughs> and really Indian people running it. The Stones had some crazy stuff. Uh, goats had soup, uh, sticky fingers. <laughs> they, they had some crazy stuff backstage, you know, mud wrestling. <laughs> Really? Women mud wrestling. They wanted uh, live women. That was part of their contract. Yes. You know, and it was like big cities. Plus, at that time, Atari had come out with Pac-Man and yeah. very games. And, you know, they had to set up like an arcade for them. You know, now you're talking about 18 tractor trailers of equipment. Then you're talking about a tractor trailer or two. For this backstage arcade <laughs> crazy <laughs> bizarre um so now back to bangladesh billy preston played in bangladesh on the bangladesh concert right yes and um, how, and you became were you his manager you be ultimately became his manager right friend and manager 
No, I actually got involved with him. Um, he, he's my, I owe everything to Billy Preston. Hmm. And uh, I have a friend from Motown that was working on a little group called the Jackson Five. <laughs> um, that was very good friends with them. Um, and Billy was on Apple Records, still doing concerts with James Cleveland. Um, I'm doing an HBO with White Horse Films uh, special, mm -hmm. um, special documentary on Billy Preston. Oh. And Billy was probably the, mo the most famous side musician, you know. And he was touring with Little Richard. Uh, Sam Cooke was on the bill. This is way before my time. This is 1964. I mean, he was like 16 when he went out with Little Richard. He was a prodigy. Mm. Um, so this guy from Motown brought him over and said, you know, I was in PR. I was in the mailroom for three months and I meet Billy Preston and we really hit it off, you know, and he said, why are you doing this? You could hire a PR, you know, you should manage me. And I said, uh. well, you, know, you don't go to school at that time for management. And so I got, you know, really involved, like, you know, people that like to read books, you know, they could read a book a week. You know, I was never one of those people, but I could get involved in something. Mm -hmm. um, um, and I got involved in Billy's career. Um, and Peter Jackson just did Let It Be. Mm -hmm. and Let It Be, the documentary. Uh, I think it's on Disney Plus. Yeah. Really successful. And George Martin's son said this album would have never been made without Billy Preston. Now, in retrospect, who knew that the rooftop was going to be the last concert? Mm. You know, if anybody was on the rooftop, let's talk to them. I happened to be one of the people on the rooftop. What? You were? <laughs> what? Did you say you were on the rooftop? Yeah, but if, at that time, Vince, you got to understand, it was no big deal. <laughs> you know, uh, Billy did the whole Let It Be album. We got songwriter credit on get back he wrote my sweet lord that's not george harrison that comes from the gospel church my he weeps you know i mean he's, he gets a credit but he didn't get paid oh. because i had a i had a deal with alan klein who signed james taylor billy preston and one or two other artists to apple records and so the reason i was there was trying to get him off of apple because huh. it wouldn't promote, that's the way God planned it, um, was on Apple Records. You know, I always seem to get involved with, uh, <laughs> you know, with situations that um, I was kind of a calming um, element in, 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 in some of the decisions until, you know, they're not number one, and they go down to 10, and then let's change the manager, let's change the PR, Let's change the record company. Um, you, you know, they want to change everything um, to find that sure. magic, you know, magic again. And, you know, with well, you the, can, there's Elton John that never lost the magic, even though he had a manager that robbed him blind. Uh, there's Billy Joel that his brother-in-law robbed him blind. 
you know, where there was, they were, they were shutting off his light, their lights and all kinds of crazy stories. Um, um, but I think you mentioned once you were very wise and, and you stayed away from their finances. You didn't want to be responsible for their. Yeah, no. Um, the one thing that um, for my own finances, I had a friend, um, uh, Michael, Michael, anyway. He was an IRS agent that became a business manager. Um, and I heard about him and I said, who could be better? And so, you know, the groups, I recommended all of the groups because I had nothing to do um, with their finances, but I recommended this guy and everybody seemed to like him and he seemed to be really sharp. And my 15% was always paid direct, you know, whether it was touring or um, from record sales um, or merchandise directly into my account. Um, there's some strange stories there too, um, because if you form an English company, you don't have to pay American taxes. But of course, meat, Meatloaf got caught on both countries trying to, uh, you know, evade the. Uh, you, you form a VAT. I mean, it, it's some of the stories are coming back to me. Um, you know that that. You, you can't believe the stories of the trouble um, that these guys could get in. You know, I'm a no exception either. You know, <laughs> I, yeah. I mean, when you're traveling with the Stones, you know. They moved uh, to south of France or got, didn't they do that for tax reasons back when they, at one point they all got residence addresses in south of France. And I always heard it was about tax. Uh, Lichtenstein. Yeah. It's a small country. Right. You know, people. It's like what the Cayman Islands is. Oh. It's like Switzerland became, you know, but now Swiss, the Swiss, uh, Switzerland has to open up the information if the United States Treasury wants it, but you can still get away without paying taxes. You know, they're all in the Cayman Islands. The stones were in Liechtenstein or Liechtenstein. Uh, there was Prince Rupert of Liechtenstein, or Liechtenstein, and that was the Stones' business manager. Jesus, right. all of the money went there. But then you couldn't come back to England. The reason you think, if you if you went this way, then you weren't allowed. You were you had a limited amount of days, so you couldn't really come back. So you counted the days to get back to your home country. Um, but they had figured out that if they toured, you know, that it would, they would be out of the country anyway, and they could do this. Um, and, and a lot of times it backfired for everybody that was smarter than the IRS or, you know, smarter than the English tax laws. Or every once in a while now you hear uh, Shakira owes $40 million in back taxes, even though she's in an, another country. But they're still holding a responsible response. Um, but, it, you know, it, it's um, so Billy was, let me go back to Billy, was on Apple Records. And the reason I was there in 1968 or 1969, um, I had been in, in the mailroom and we went to a guy called uh, Abe Summer, which, which was the number one law firm in Los Angeles for entertainment. 
Uh, it was called Mitchell Silverberg, but not, and I owe everything to Billy. Um, uh, meaning he was my first client. He allowed me to do certain things. And if it wasn't for Billy, I would have, wouldn't have met, um, you know, or made the deal for Ron Wood when he left Faces. He was a sideman, like Billy was, on Sticky Fingers or Goat's Head Soup. They were both sidemen. Um, uh, when Mick Taylor decided he didn't want to be with the Stones anymore. So they tried out uh, Stevie Ray Vaughan, but he was too powerful. Uh, Jeff Beck, but he was nuts. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I could go down the list. <laughs> uh, and Woody is just, just like he is, just the sweetest guy in the whole world. You know, and so you, you immediately, and he's telling, and he played that slide guitar. And so after two tours, uh, they made him a stone, and then I was no longer involved. But I was the one that got Billy, oh. Bonnie, on the Stones tour. But that's after the Beatles. How does that work? So when somebody like Billy Preston, when you say sidemen, do they just get a per diem? Like they just get a, here's, you know, you're getting your $200 a day or whatever it's going to be. Um, they get, um, you get a lump sum for the tour. Oh. That's the sidemen. Yes, oh, okay. diem, you know, um, but they get a lump sum, you know, so if they, if the merchandise, you know, they were doing X amount of dollars in merchandise, um, uh, they didn't participate in that. Um, they, they didn't participate in anything um, with the, that had to do with the business side. So it was strictly, um, you know, you came in, you did your job. You know, we, we what was his name, James? Keltner, Bobby, um, Kemp was his name. There were famous side guys that mm. was, you know, the Funk Brothers or Muscle, Show, Muscle Shoals or um, um, yeah. you, there was, you know, sidemen were the way to do it. You know, um, then the then the you know an artist would have to find a backup band mm. <laughs> um, that wasn't necessarily um, the people who recorded the song, um, like Bernie Toplin and Elton John. I, I happened to be close with them years ago. I had shot the open for Giant Stadium. It was no big deal. But then when they made the movie, it was a big deal. Mm, right. Yeah, there's always... Well, we're almost... We just whizzed through all this time. Any, any any final things you want to say about the HBO that you can say about the Billy Preston uh, documentary or, or anything yeah. you're up to now? Well, um, it's being made now. Um, 60 Minutes played the Peter Jackson interview um, uh, consecutive weeks it was so popular though so mm. they must be able to figure that out uh, I've never seen it done before um, um, I think they got um, they got Eric Clapton uh, to talk about Billy because he worked with he toured uh, towards the end of Billy's life he was um, he always played with, with with and for Eric in the studio um Nobody could play the Hammond B3 organ um, um, like Billy Preston. It, it's not something that you could teach a kid. 
you know, at three years old, he was playing as good as he was mm. when he was five. He went from gospel to country to rock and roll. It really didn't matter. Yeah. Um, and so when he sang, that's the way God planned it. I mean, you know, gave him, you know, he couldn't read music. It was all a feeling. There was yeah. no charts for Billy when you went in the studio. Everybody else is trying to remember what they wrote. <laughs> yeah. He, played, he never swayed. He played the same thing consistently because he felt it, you know, and they depended on it. If you if you look at 60 Minutes, you know, they give him credit for keeping the band together during that period of time. Um, you can see it in the documentary. They, they The Beatles come alive when he sits down at that organ and, and they're... And, and uh, get back. I mean, the band all of a sudden is the Beatles again. You really feel they just. He was the fifth Beatle. Yeah. Yeah. Part of me working with John Reed, Elton, and the Stones. And, and the, the, the only reason I got to meet all of these people, here I am in London at Abbey Road, trying to get off of Apple Records. <laughs> you know, finally, the way I got off is that I had to, I came back to America. Um, Mitchell Silverberg and Nuff had got me a certified agreement and it said Billy Preston would be released from his uh, Apple record deal mm. and of course George Harrison signed it. I flew back with Billy after spending time at Henley on Thames, flew back to America and was able to make Billy um, the A&M deal but I couldn't get him off of Apple even with a lawyer in England, um, I, I, the only way I could do it is to be clever, not to be, I wasn't trying to hurt anybody. Yeah. But what happened was, you know, you would have never heard of, of James Taylor. Alan Klein, you know, struck oil in his backyard in England. Yeah. I mean, you don't know what they're going to become when they become it. And I think the Beatles will live forever. To be honest, but sold their gave their whole library to Alan Klein, or he took over and didn't rip them off, didn't he, or something like that? Yeah, I mean, it's you know, so these things <laughs> looking back, you know, I have to laugh because I'm one of the one of the you know, 10 standing, you know, McCartney's in shape, but how many people remember, you know, still remember this or remember that? Yeah. One thing. Uh, we had a song that Billy wrote called You Are So Beautiful. Mm -hmm. uh, and we did fairly well. And then it was, uh, I became friends with Michael Lang, who just recently died. Michael yeah. from Woodstock, Michael Lang. Who oh, yeah, the guy who helped Woodstock. Woodstock yeah. And so we were, this is after Woodstock. We shared an office um, <laughs> in New York. And I was able to, he loved the song. And he said, could Joe Cocker do it? And it wasn't long after Billy did it. And because Joe Cocker was kind of rock and roll and everybody loved him like Van Morrison, um, he did You Are So Beautiful. And where Billy's only went to top 30, Joe Cocker's rendition is the best. And it went to number one. And Joe Cocker did sing it at his funeral. Really? Oh. Um, and we both moved to Westport because I had the house in Westport or Weston. Mm -hmm. um, so when we went back uh, bankrupt and had to sell, that was the only asset he had. 
Okay. Really? Hmm. He lost the house, but he only had a deposit on it. You know, he was making mortgage payments. So that was the only thing he had to give up. It's not as though he owned um, apartment houses, you know, in Miami Beach or whatever. The only asset that he had, that was the only thing he had to give up. And that was emotional. You know, you you got to remember that these artists, you know, have highs and lows. It's almost a babysitting job um, when you're on the road. Mm. And I guess uh, we could go on forever. <laughs> no, no. Well, well, this is already part two, sort of. But no, thank you so much, Bob. And uh, stuff. Yeah, it really just to get that inside look, which is so rare. Maybe we'll do a part two one day. Okay. Well, I appreciate your time. And um, this is great. And uh, another shout out to our friend Nick Visconti, who introduced us. But uh, well, actually, I met you before that at the edge, I think, or somewhere. Yeah. yeah. I think. Yeah, that's pretty Nick, Nick Viscott. Yeah, and Levitt Pavilion. I you were involved with the Levitt for a while. Yeah, yeah an experience. Yeah, um, <laughs> you know the when there was time for that one big fundraiser. Yes, you, you had all the fancy ladies of Westport, um, and there was. I we have to have Barbara Streisand. All yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, this one year. This one year. I had recommended Loose Traveler. Mm. Do you know how popular they were? John Popper, yeah. Right, Popper. Um, and I had a, an in with, with his uh, manager, and he said he would do it. But, you know, we they weren't aware that they would have to, that there would be people all over Westport that just wanted to hear the music. Yeah. And there was not a... a, a, a there was no reality check with the names. I mean, I could throw out names if I wanted to do, I would like to see Adele in the shed, but it's not a reality. And I was, you know, a, a young group that's got a couple of writer, write-ups in Rolling Stone, you know, it's, it's going to draw, you know, eight, 10,000 people, you know, without having to buy ads. Yeah. And that's, yeah. I Do you remember, of course you remember Gathering of the Vibes. Sure. Oh, yeah. I've been there. Yeah. Yeah. And, and Ken Hayes. I'm not quite sure why he gave it up. It always looks. Oh, he gave it up for. Ta oh, he got he he had ripped off the. He owed the city like several hundred thousand dollars in security and money payments for security force and all that. And and he they just uh, he went away. I don't know if he went to jail, but he went away. Oh, OK. Well, that's what happened to Ken Hayes. Anyway, guys, thank you very much. Thank, thank you. you. Uh, Nick, I'll see you during the summer. All right. Bye. Take care.